0: Welcome to the Preach and Persuade podcast. My name is Sam Parada, and I'm here with a friend, somebody that's never been on the podcast before, Mason Skaggs. He uh, is a member of the church that I'm a member at. We both came to Kansas City at about the same exact time, like exa- almost like exactly a year ago in, yeah. in July of, of 2022. And yeah, we're members at Emmaus Church. We go to the same community group together. We met at Community Group about a year ago, and and we are going to start a new series. We just got done with the series on um, the doctrine of the church, and we're going to start a new series uh, on basically spiritual gifts, but more with an emphasis on those gifts that are considered to be the supernatural gifts or the miraculous gifts. And, and we're going to kind of have a little bit of like a, a debate between continuationism and cessationism. So I am a cessationist and I'm going to represent as best as I can the cessationist position and Mason as a continuationist is going to represent as best as he can the, the continuationist position. Now keep in mind, like I think this is, is, is really a cool thing what we're doing because we're both members, covenant members of the same church. So this really is kind of, that should illustrate like that you can have immense unity between Christians to, to the point to where you can be members of the same church and and not a church that's doctrinally shallow or doesn't even take stances on like Emmaus Church <laughs> if anybody knows about Emmaus in North Kansas City I mean it's like it's very doctrinally rigorous and some yep. of the brightest uh, Christian scholars go to Emmaus think of like Matthew Barrett, Patrick Schreiner, Thomas Kidd like mm-hmm. they're members of Emmaus Church in North Kansas City, the church that we are members at, and so the fact that you can have uh, a continuationist and a cessationist in the, in the same church kind of shows or illustrates the fact of, uh, like, this is, if you want to think of a theological triage, this is probably, yep. like, very, very low third order, maybe even getting to or very very low second order, or getting into even maybe third order doctrine, where you can have brothers and sisters in the same covenant community that disagree on these issues. So, but there is there are, or there are a lot of movements now in churches that that would fall within the continuationist camp that we would heavily disagree with, though. And we're right. we're more talking specifically about you know. Pentecostal belief, like hyper-charismatic type stuff, Word of Faith stuff, new apostolic reformation movements. Um, and so what we're going to do in this episode specifically, before we get into an actual discussion between uh, the, what we would call the biblical forms of, of continuationism and cessationism, we're going to talk about what we think is unbiblical on these on these issues of spiritual gifts and miraculous gifts and things like that. Um, so that's that's going to be this episode. Primarily a critique on, on Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement, and right. and the abuses of the charismatic mu- movement, and kind of the new apostolic reformation type stuff. Yep. So before we get into that, though, Mason, why don't you just kind of give an introduction on yourself, and why why am I talking about this issue with you and not somebody else, if that makes sense? Why are you particularly interested in a discussion on spiritual gifts and... Yeah, continuationism and things like things like that.
1: Yeah, thanks, Sam. It's I'm I'm really glad to be with you. I think you're talking to me because you wanted a straw man you could put up and take take shots <laughs> at, you know? beat up bad. Yeah,
0: one that I really know I can win right. the argument with. Just That's a, why an easy <laughs> pinata
1: for for you to beat up on. But no, um, my name is Mason Skaggs. Um, I am 26. I'm a dad of two and. Uh, like you said, we moved to Kansas city around the exact same time. So we, we were our first two days in, in the church, what you were a week out from me. A week later. Yeah. A week yep. later. And, um, since being at Emmaus, I'm the director of musical worship at Emmaus church in Kansas city. And, um, you're, I think you're probably talking to me because you, you and I tend to talk about it a lot. And we had a conversation over the phone, uh, I was raised in a Pentecostal cult, actually, like a, an actual cult. Yeah, yeah. And so I have experience with that side of things. And then I, I was not saved until I was 21. So uh, up until that time, I was dabbling in the occult and really kind of flung myself headlong into drug addiction and into occult practices, new age practices. And then when I came to Christ... I I was saved into more of a word of faith, um, kind of a new apostolic reformation type environment. Sure. And I saw a lot of, it was amazing the parallels between the new age and this this type of hyper charismatic movement that I found. Um, Mm. I experienced a lot of, you know, powerful things there, but... Yeah, it was undeniable the parallels between the New Age and some of the things I was reading, some of the things I got from like. Uh, don't want to throw shade, uh, but from like things that Bill Johnson and Chris Valiton had had written forewords for like the science of heaven or the physics of mm-hmm. heaven. I apologize, those kind of things. Um, yeah, they they were they were they smelled heavily. No, no, I mean they were explicitly New Age. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, so I've had a really big interest in this. I was a sen- cessationist for a while. I tried to be, uh, and you know, I just, I just love the Bible. And so I came out of it unlike you, you know? And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, well,
0: even just like kind of bring us in a little bit more. Cause it's just fascinating into some of those parallels that you saw between the occult and and new age stuff with these charismatic movements or churches that you were in getting involved in early in
1: your faith. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the first parallels. Yeah. One of the first parallels is what they would have, what they would call um, positive affirmation or word of faith, you know, uh, proclamations, declarations. Speaking things into existence almost. Right. Yeah. And that's something that I learned when I was like 13 or 14 in my first secular rehabilitation center. Um, They made us watch the secret uh, from Oprah Winfrey. Hmm. And uh, they made us practice yoga and things like that. And I, so I had been practicing manifestation from the time I was like 13 to whenever I was 21 and and then as I've gotten to the occult later on, like 18, 19, those uh, those practices that are advocated in the secret and uh, in a lot of self-help books nowadays they translate really really seamlessly into occult practices like when you're when you're casting a spell or when you're doing a certain blood ritual to the ability to or the belief that you can craft a reality in your mind and then like broadcast it through your intent, through your words to the world. That's that concept was something that I found in hyper charismatic movements and it was like the mm-hmm. exact same concept uh, just with Jesus slapped on it. Right, right. Yeah. So what what got you out of that then? The, that that hyper charismatic? Yeah. Thing. So my wife and I, <clears throat> and I, I want to say too, at that church, they loved us so well, and they they really were blood-bought Christians there. There there were, you know, among them, blood, sure. yep. blood-bought Christians, and they helped us pursue holiness. Like we were, my wife and I were married there, we were baptized there, and they called out sin in us and stuff, but we started listening to like, I started listening to like Vody and John <laughs> MacArthur. That'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and John Piper and Paul, Paul Washer, a lot of Paul yep. Washer. And so I started listening to these reformed guys who would talk about the Puritans. And it was like this magnificent God, this massive view of God that I had, I, I wanted and I knew was there, but, and this, this like, a, a, uh, a, a shocking view of sin, a, a strike, you know, a staggering view of the ugliness of sin and the, the seriousness of God's wrath and his judgment. It was something that I had just never had preached before or, or heard. Wow. So I started hearing those things and coming home to my wife and complaining all the time. I also really loved, <laughs> I loved Justin Peters, listened to a ton yep. of Justin Peters and like, uh, yep. Other guys, I forget. There's so many now um, yeah. that will like kind of take apart stuff. And, um, yep. and so we, I, talked, I sat down and talked to our preacher, our head pastor. There was no elders. It was just him. And I asked him one day we had a church meeting and it was so stark up on the, the big screen. They had the number of physical healings, which I had seen those take place and stuff. Great stuff physical healings, baptisms, and conversions. They had the numbers up and it was like 300, uh, physical healings, 10 baptisms, like three confirmed conversions. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, there's your priority list right there. (laughs) Right. So we talked to our pastor and he told us that they, they follow the same method that Paul does whenever he tells, uh, the Corinthians, I believe it is. He says, I didn't come to you with eloquent words of wisdom, but with, uh, with demonstrations of power. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but he also says in, I think in that same book that he chose to know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. Yeah. 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 To them. So I didn't have any kind of language to refute him, but he just let us know he wasn't going to change their, their, uh, their practice, their orthopraxy. Yeah. Or is that what it's called? Um, well,
0: orthopraxy is correct practice. Okay. He- heteropraxy, I think would be false practice.
1: They weren't going to change their practice. You see? Yeah. yeah. So
0: <laughs> there you go, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: man. Well,
0: okay. So I think that's a good, that's a good introduction. Uh, you know, for me, um, I, so, okay. You, did you then kind of, you were listening to Washer. You were listening to Bacham. You were listening to MacArthur, those guys, and and Peters, and those guys are cessationists. Piper's right. a continuationist, um, but obviously MacArthur is probably the most famous famous of the cessationists because he kind of wrote the book on it. If that makes sense, right? Uh, Strange Fire, right? And he had a book earlier on called The Charismatics. And, and so he just really emphasized the, the errors of the charismatic movement. Um, so you, is that when you then for a moment or for a brief time became a cessationist?
1: Yeah. And I want to be careful about that and be totally honest about it. I, I stopped speaking in tongues. Um, and I, I just really questioned everything. I didn't come become settled like i think these have ceased i just i stopped practicing and uh i was under a lot of my conscience was really pained about all of it so i just stopped practicing yeah, the gifts yeah. and yeah. uh and we joined a reformed church a reformed baptist church and uh i really didn't explore the gifts further until until I was more settled in my faith, sure, yeah gotcha
0: so you you probably never were like we consider yourself actually like a th-
1: theologically exegetically derived cessationist, never an exegetically derived cessationist, just uh just in practice, I was a cessationist for a time yeah, yeah, yeah. gotcha, gotcha,
0: okay, so. My, I guess my story a little bit, too, is with, as it pertains to the, the gifts and the miraculous gifts. I mean, I grew up in a Lutheran church, an ELCA Lutheran church, and, I mean, very liberal. Really stopped going to church uh, after I was confirmed in ninth grade. Um, and I, I had never even heard of tongues or anything like that. Like, didn't even know it was a thing. And then my sister, she's three years older than me. She went to 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 college at North Dakota State in Fargo, and she w- joined Kai Alpha, which is the Assemblies of God's, uh, you know, campus ministry. And so in Kai Alpha, obviously the, in their small groups, there is a lot of tongue tongue speaking, and they teach you how to speak in tongues, and it's it's an emphasis and of their ministries, baptizing people in the Spirit. So I started to hear about this from my sister, thinking this is the coolest thing I have ever heard about in my life. Like what? (laughs) Like these supernatural, like you can, a language you never learned, like you can speak this. And that just was so cool to me. So I, I, I was not, when I heard about it, I was not skeptical. I was like a full believer. Like that's a thing. Like God can totally do that. Right. And, uh, so when I got to college then, uh, I joined the campus ministry of Crew, which is not charismatic. And, and as I started to read the Bible more, I'm like, okay, I don't think I believe what the Chi Alpha people believe, um, that everybody should speak in tongues. I think it's a gift that God gives to some, just like any of the gifts he manifests these gifts in some. I mean, if we're all, if we're all feet, if we're all eyes, if we're all hands, well, then something's a problem. Right Like we have different giftings, and so that's kind of the position, which is a pretty typical continuationist position, yeah when you're not in the Pentecostal church yep uh and that's where I was for for a, a few handful of years probably um, <coughs> in college and and I even got <laughs> this is funny, I haven't told this story to to very many people, so for the people who are listening on the podcast, this is going to be a new story for you. And um, some of you who know me really well are probably going to be like, man, I can't believe he's never told me this in person. But when I was a sophomore at NDSU, I was 19 years old, I actually got baptized in the Spirit by one of my good friends who was a leader for Chi Alpha, and he grew up in a Pentecostal church. And, and so he kind of explained what he does when he baptizes somebody in, somebody in the Spirit, and, and he says he's done it a lot, and... And when you're baptized in the spirit, you'll speak in tongues, blah, 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 blah. Is that you and speaking in tongues
1: right there? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah,
0: yeah blah, blah, blah. Are, yeah. <laughs> there it is, folks. <laughs> um, and at that point, I, I would have thought that, and I did think that, you know what? I don't think this is what he thinks it is. But I do believe that this is a way that you can man or like spur on or stir up a gift. Sure. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like God may have given me or is going to give me the spiritual gift of tongues. And I believe that this is the way in which he could do that. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how I thought viewed it. And so he did it. He He baptized me in the spirit in my apartment. And he said, what I'll do is I will put my hands on you. And I'll start praying and then I'll start praying in tongues out loud. And then, and then when you feel the urge, like you can start praying in tongues out loud as well. Mm. And, and so he did that and he started praying in tongues. That was the first time I ever heard tongues in person. And then I I opened my mouth and I started speaking in tongues and it was a very euphoric feeling. Yeah. Uh, It was very emotional, very electric Uh, A lot of chills. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Very, uh, like, I felt very light uh, and excited. And I'm like, man, sweet. I have the spiritual gift of tongues. Right. Like, that's how I thought. I didn't think, oh, I was, I just got, had this second experience, this empowering, and we're going to get into that theologically here. Yeah. I didn't think that, even though that's what my friend thought happened.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I thought, oh, I just, I have the spiritual gift of tongues. How cool is that? Uh, so I, I practiced tongues for probably, oh, probably a few months, not super regularly, but on occasion. And I could do it, I could do it right now. I could, I could start speaking in tongues. You know, I have air quotes because I'm now a cessationist, so I don't actually believe I'm speaking in tongues. Yeah. Um, but at the time I did, but I also started to become, as I started to do it, I became more and more skeptical of it. Mm-hmm. uh. Because, one, I didn't think I was actually further empowered to do anything. I thought my life, my evangelism, all that didn't change pre-post. And it's like, man, like this could just be me making up words. Right. (laughs) And that's kind of how I – and then I got exposed to John MacArthur and those guys and um, would have originally thought these guys – I don't agree with them, sure. but then I I started to dig into it more and more and more, and really look at the the exegetical arguments and and I'm, eventually I I jumped over into the cessationist camp. Yeah. And then I would say I don't remember exactly when I did that. Probably I was probably twenty two. I want to say.
1: So. When I would you say the experience you had with your friend. Was that, would you put that in a, like, this was, this was God, this was my flesh, this was demonic, what category? I wouldn't,
0: I wouldn't put it into any of those categories. I think that it was just, I don't think it was, certainly I wouldn't say it was demonic. Okay. Um, I would maybe just put it in the category of unwise. Okay. Not sin, uh just something that you that happened that you think is something that it's not i'm being pretty vague i'm trying to find an analogy or a parallel that i could think of um
1: but you do think it was like psychological
0: i think it was psychological okay that makes yeah. sense and i don't think it was i don't think it was my flesh like urging me into it i was just, i think it was just uh for me uh, a time of ignorance in my walk and and something that wasn't inherently bad or inherently good. Now, obviously what you believe about it could be bad. Right. Um, but at that moment, I don't think the way that I was approaching it was sinful. Okay. Yep. So yeah, I'm not coming from the position of anybody who speaks in tongues is doing something fleshly or sinful. Right. Yeah. No. I'm, I'm more coming from the position, and we'll get into this too, because a lot of, I mean on both sides, there's a lot of misconceptions. Yeah. yeah. Whatever, whatever camp you're in, and if you've been in that camp for your whole life, and you've never been from the other camp, there might be some misconceptions that you have that you need ironed out about the other the other views. Totally. Um, so I'm not I'm not of the the camp that um, that speaking in tongues. For instance, what you would do is is sinful. I would just say it's a waste of time. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, we talked about that. And I appreciate yeah, yeah. I at least appreciate that differentiation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I have I have talked to you know beloved sister, brothers and sisters in the Lord who well on both sides. I might talk to a a a Pentecostal leaning brother that I love and he finds out I'm I'm a Calvinist. And yeah. he's like uh-oh. The doctrine of demons. They are taught that yeah. that's like a, a demonic doctrine that that encourages wild living and yep. and then I'm, I might talk to a super reformed sister like I was a couple months ago, and she finds out that I'm a continuationist, and it's basically just like you're you you're one of those people I've seen on TV, like you're one of those heretics, right? And right. So I'm glad we're having the conversation. Yeah, this is fun, and then this is
0: this is a conversation that's so interesting too. Mm-hmm. It's a fun conversation to have, and I'm excited to get into, um, yeah, get into you know First Corinthians 12 through 14, really look at the the exegetical arguments too. Yeah. And um, me too. But yeah. So anyway, I think that's a good introduction of kind of our experiences. Um, but you, I'm like you would say you'd be fine with saying like you you right now practice tongues.
1: Well, I had my microphone muted, but yeah. No, I, I speak in tongues every day, uh, every day. I try to practice the gifts of healing. I don't think that that's something that, that the Lord has, like I, 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 have, I have demonstrated, I haven't, you know, it hasn't been demonstrated that the Lord has supernaturally gifted uh, me in, or used me as a channel for healings. Like I've seen, I've seen cancer healed. I've seen uh, babies in the womb, uh, their, their brains healed. Mm-hmm. But I've never like been laying hands on somebody other than my wife and them get healed before, right before my eyes. Um, sure. And then, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a practicing, practicing charismatic. Practicing tongue speaker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, bro.
0: <laughs> okay, good. Okay, let's get into then, because uh, this episode is going to be about what we what we agree on. Like what we agree is the abuses, or what's what's the wrong view of the gifts, um, right? And and I'm gonna start by giving just a brief kind of overview or history of, of Pentecostalism, because this is just this is just kind of fascinating. Because uh, Pentecostalism, I mean, it's it's not that old. Like Mm-mm. the the Pentecostal movement, really, you could say its its inception conception was was Azusa Street in 1906. And, and that, and from that point on, you know, it started to grow and spread, but man, it wasn't a thing before that. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's when you have almost 2000 years of church history and, and also a new thing comes, you, you tend to be a little bit skeptical, like a new teaching, a new view of how to interpret these things that somehow the church got wrong for 1900 years. Um, So so yeah, Pentecostalism though it's it it kind of found its its um it's connected to to Wesleyanism a little bit in the holiness movement. Yeah, and the hallmark the hallmark like doctrine or view of Pentecostalism that sets it apart from all the other Protestant denominations and and really has it be this new thing is is Spirit baptism the second experience that. It's not regeneration, it's, it's not conversion, it's not when you're saved, it's a, it's a secondary thing that you have to seek out and you get baptized in the Spirit, which, you know, as my friend that I just shared did to me, that's what he thought he was doing to me, and, and it's what empowers you for ministry. Uh, you're not going to have a, a, a ministry that's, that's empowered by the Spirit unless you get baptized in the Spirit post yep. your conversion. And the the, the only um, and definitive sign that you have been baptized in the Spirit is that you speak in tongues. So, right off the bat, if if Pentecostals are saying that everybody should seek to be baptized in the Spirit after their conversion, after their regeneration, then every single believer should then be able to speak in tongues. Right. So that's that's kind of the logic there. Now, this is again connected to the the Wesleyan holiness movement and and um, in Wesleyan doctrine. Think 1800s, um, you know, the 17th century. Uh, y- you have this you have this teaching that started to really advance in the Methodist movement of of perfectionism mm-hmm. uh, that you can become perfect this side of heaven that you can reach complete sanctification where you, you no longer sin right and and really the the successor of of one of the Wesley brothers uh, his name is John Fletcher he was the one that really kind of started this this doctrine of perfectionism and then it was kind of brought back into prominence in the mid 19th century by uh, uh, a woman named Phoebe Palmer and and yeah so then certain individuals uh kind of took this perfectionist doctrine mm-hmm. and in a sense they they then applied it to this idea of being baptized in the spirit. Like that this
1: the spirit gives you the 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 sec the power that you didn't have before to go on to be to live a holy, you know, perfect, perfectly holy exa- life. Exactly.
0: Exactly. It's like, okay, well if you want to reach complete sanctification in this life, you need the second experience. You need this empowering. And the way in which you get that is by being baptized in the Spirit. So that uh, so the early Pentecostal leaders kind of took and revamped that holiness perfectionist doctrine and and melded it together into this like Holy Spirit baptism type view that that became the hallmark of the Pentecostal movement. Uh, and again, the the sign that you've been baptized in the Spirit is that you speak in tongues. Now, that's a little bit of an overview, overview but to get down into some more details, uh, like tongues wasn't much of a thing uh, for the most part in church history. You see instances in church history where tongues crops up here and there, and people say they speak in tongues. And, and there was this guy named Charles—I think you would pronounce it Parham— um, it's kinda of funny, I'm from the town of Perham in Minnesota, but it's Parham. And Charles Parham of Kansas, and we're I'm in Kansas right now, so close to home. And he's really kind of considered to be the pioneer of the of the Pentecostal doctrine of the initial evidence of tongues when the spirit baptizes you. And he was a radical prophet of the American Methodist Holiness movement. And in the late nineteenth century, And he emphasized the need for spirit baptism, for the power of of missions, and obviously to be completely sanctified and things like that. And um, he emphasized the need to be healed and all these kind of hallmark Pentecostal beliefs before Pentecostalism was a thing. And uh, he kind of developed his theology by drawing on Quaker theology, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the Holiness Doctrine— a pre-mill- premillennialism of Darby, so kind of a classical dispensationalist view, and he kind of mo- right. melded all this together into kind of form this unique the- theology that he had, and and he promoted these beliefs in his theology in a journal that he would write called the Apostolic Faith. Uh, later Pentecostal churches would have kind of adopt that that journal title as the title or the name of their church, um, but. Anyway, he he started this school called the Bethel Bible School in Kansas, Mm -hmm. Uh, and his theology was just a theory for the most part as he was teaching these views. It was just a theory. He didn't didn't actually experience the baptism of the Spirit or speaking in tongues uh, before he was propagating these ideas. So it was just theory. But yet he was teaching students at his Bethel Bible School about Speaking in tongues, baptism of the spirit, all that type of stuff. But then on January 1st, 1901, uh one of his students, whose name is Agnes Osman, spoke in tongues all of a sudden. And then two days later, Parham spoke in tongues, and then all of a sudden, half of his remaining students spoke in tongues. And so that that was really kind of the f- founding of of the Pentecostal movement in a sense. That's kind of its its. The undercurrents of what's going on in the early 1900s in America, but his school disintegrated, and then and then some of the the followers of his teaching started another school in Houston, Texas, in 1905, and one of the graduates of that school in Houston, Texas, was a guy named William J. Uh, Seymour. Um, Seymour, Seymour, I don't know how you pronounce it. And he then went to Los Angeles during the, the Los Angeles revivals in 1906. And then, obviously, April 1906, you have the Azusa Street Revival where right. a bunch of people spoke in tongues. And that that is then the foundation of the Pentecostal movement, Azusa yeah. Street. Yeah. So you have this guy, Charles Parham, has this theory, starts teaching it at a Bethel Bible school. Students start speaking in tongues. He speaks in tongues. Some of their followers start another school in Houston. Seymour graduates from that school, goes to Azusa Street in 1906, and that's the, the spark of the Pentecostal movement.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it lasted a long time on Azusa Street as well. Um, there were That's also kind of where once, once it took off in California, you know, you had different classes, different races. Yep. All adopting similar expressions of worship and, uh, and like this house was packed every night, but that's, that's actually around that same time as when, uh, the anti, uh, anti-intellectual sentiments kind of started. Oh, for sure. Because other pastors would come and check it out, like from the Presbyterian, movements are from Baptist churches would come and, and check it out. And there were lots of naysayers like these people are just pure emotivist um, or or they're just purely emotionally based. Yeah. And the response was more like, well, we don't need you seminary degree, you know, having people to affirm us. And that that's kind of where the rift developed. Maybe it was there before. I've just heard from you know from historians that's that's a, that's around the same time that that rift yeah. developed
0: and and another thing too is like you think of like you know the late 1900s early you know um no no late 1800s early 1900s excuse me you know you have the rise of modernism i mean charles yep. darwin was was kind of the the thing at that point and Secularism started to, to advance, and modernist theology started to advance, and liberalism—obviously liberalism, obviously liberalism is, is modern theology during that time—started um, to advance. And so dispensationalists and the early charismatics, they were, they were the ones that kind of fought against that liberal theology, that modernist theology— yeah. And the modernist theology was characterized by kind of the, the higher academic intellectual types. Yeah. So part of that, too, is like, okay, the the conservatives are the ones that don't have the, the high degrees, that haven't gone to school and, and been inundated with this, this this, you know, liberal theology. German um, theology. Yeah. yeah, German, higher biblical criticism, yeah. things like that, exactly. So... It was the it was the uneducated that were kind of seeming to um, stay rooted in the uh, the conservative view that the Bible is the ultimate authority
1: well and to that point quickly like the the Anglicans were were really affected by the liberal uh, theology yeah back in the day <clears throat> I wish I had dates and stuff I'm not a historian but they even they started discounting the the miraculous all of the miraculous things that happened in the Bible and kind of just Selecting the things they they thought were you know historically accurate about Jesus, and it was it was uh, you know the spiritual gifts they started seeing seeing those active those, see, and having those uh, you know become apparent in their churches that actually brought them back to accepting the miraculous in the Bible. Like if this is happening in our churches, then it it could have happened back then. So you know it Pentecostalism has has given and it has also you know taken away and been yeah. been a problem
0: yep so early in the pentecostal movement then early 1900s you have pentecostalism adopting what's called the fourfold um, mission which is proclaiming salvation in christ healing so physical healing sp- spirit baptism and then the imminent return of christ to usher in Christ's millennial kingdom. So remember, um, early Pentecostalism adopted the the classical dispensational kind of t- view of Darby, that type of premillennial view, and and so they adopted this fourfold mission, or they they say they've kind of founded it, but really what they did is they they stole it. I, maybe stealing is the wrong word, but they they certainly yeah adopted it from the Christian Missionary Alliance Alliance movement. Um, their their founder. The CMA's founder Albert Simpson—he—he's the one that coined the term, um, the fourfold gospel, in 1890, and he used it to describe Christ as savior, sanctifier, f- savior, sanctifier, healer, and king. But then uh, a woman named Amy Semple McPherson, which is a pretty well-known name in the Pen- Pentecostal world, she—she she apparently said that she received a revelation from Christ. Where she was given the motto of what she called the Four Square Gospel, in yeah 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 yeah, that's the or name of her church. Y- yeah, four yeah. yeah for her International Church of the Four Square Gospel. Yeah, so she said, "I got this divine revelation from Christ about this Four Square Gospel, and it, it's it's yeah this idea of you know salvation, healing, Spirit baptism, imminent, imminent return of Christ, and." And really what she did is she just repackaged it, repackaged the Christian Missionary Alliance founder, Albert Simpson's 4 full gospel, and just replaced, for the most part, replaced Sanctifier um, with bapti- Baptism of the Spirit. So a little bit of some um, trickery going on there in some underhanded ways. But nonetheless, that's where you get this idea of the four-square gospel, and and that, that is then kind of the hallmark of the charismatic Pentecostal movement is this, this four-square gospel, this, this you know, we preach Christ the Savior. We, we we preach, you know, that you need to be baptized in the Spirit, the second experience. Um, we preach that you can be physically healed, and that Christ's death on the cross earned for us physical healing, healing in this life now uh, through faith and and then, obviously, the imminent return of Christ to set up his his kingdom. So, yeah, that's. I think that's all I want to really say about kind of the overview of Pentecostalism. Do you have any thoughts, Mason, that you want to
1: want to add, or anything you want clarified, or think should be clarified? No, I mean, I think you you nailed it. I'm I'm not very articulate when it comes to the history of Pentecostalism. I haven't honestly studied it very much. Um, I I think we sh- it, it's. If somebody wants to do more research on like second wave charismatic expression or and third wave, uh, then then they should because the second wave charismatic folks, it's basically they they still had an emphasis on the the, the miraculous spiritual gifts you know the so-called miraculous spiritual gifts, but they didn't believe that this. Uh, they didn't believe the second blessing was, or the second, you know, the baptism of the Holy spirit was always, uh, signaled by tongues. If I, if I remember that right. And then third wave, I think probably, uh, Wimber, uh, was, was probably a big proponent of that. I, I, I can't remember who exactly Wigglesworth Wigglesworth. I think,
0: Oh, what was his first name?
1: Yeah, I remember that last year. Yeah, because it's Wigglesworth. Because it's Wigglesworth. Wigglesworth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but Wigglesworth and and uh, John Wimber and yep. the the Vineyards movement. Th- those yep. kind of those uh, those movements are what we call the third wave, and that's kind of where I would find myself is in the third wave, where there's still an an emphasis on the spiritual. You know, the so-called miraculous gifts are for today. They should be earnestly. Pursued, we 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 believe in, in that you know continue in continual fillings of the Holy Spirit. People, some people articulate that differently, but like we believe that the Spirit empowers and fills for ministry. But it's not, it's it's in no way tied to soteriology or to your. Uh, it's not you shouldn't pursue a, or you shouldn't second it, experience right. Yeah. You shouldn't expect a second experience of of salvific proportion. You know right. Right, it, and
0: it's not brought about by people necessarily doing this thing to you, where they lay their hands on you and pray over you in tongues, and you right. are then baptized in the Spirit. It's you know, it's Paul saying, "Be filled with the Spirit." You know, don't be filled with wine; be filled with the Spirit. Right, um, and we do that by the The you could say the ordinary means of grace: prayer, reading our Bible, meditating on Christ, um, worshiping with the saints. Yeah. Um, things like that were filled then and empowered by the spirit for ministry in that moment. So, right. And the spirit, I mean, you can go, we could go and evangelize and this, we would pray and we would hope that the spirit's going to fill us to do the work of evangelism in in that moment. Yeah. But it's not, yeah, it's not this, Oh, I had this experience two years ago that is perpetually empowering me to
1: do all the ministry now for the rest of my life. Right. Right. And it's like, it could be, you can have formative experiences with the Holy Spirit where you can't deny the power that you've encountered and it, for, right. it forms, it helps shape your ministry and your life. Like, I think you should seek those things and be open to those things. Like I am open to those things. I, and I expect those things, but I am not upset to receive God's uh, wisdom and his, his presence through the ordinary means of grace you know, and and nor, nor
0: is kind of the big thing is, is nor is that empowering that we're talking about that we think is biblical, um, evidenced by tongues. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of the big distinction too. Yes. So let's get into, um, briefly, briefly before we get into kind of just refuting theologically and exegetically the baptism of the spirit, um, just briefly talk about kind of the new apostolic reformation and what what category you would put that into. Then
1: it's it's a little bit of an enigma. The new apostolic reformation. I mean, some people try to draw hard lines. Um, I think Holly and Doug Pivick or Holly Pivick and Doug S. His last name starts with an S. They have a book called uh, "Counterfeit Kingdom," refuting uh, the NAR. And total, I I disagree with them on some points. They they do draw some helpful like lines to or some criteria for an NAR ministry. And I think the NAR there's they have I think it's the Seven Mountains Initiative. Man, hmm. I need to brush up on this. But <laughs> basically, there's these cultural mandates that they yeah that they pursue like uh you know media uh. I'm just gonna botch yeah. it. Here, here it is. I got it. You I got pulled it. it up. Okay.
0: R- religion, family, education, government, media, arts and entertainment, and
1: business. And it's the seven mountains. Yeah, that's that's the seven. Okay, what's the, yep. the seven mountains mandate? Is that what they call it?
0: Um, this is just Wikipedia, so I don't know how accurate <laughs> it is. Though no, similar intent and purpose, not to be confused with. They call this theocracy. Nah. Um, Kingdom minded people in all areas, of se- there are seven areas identified specifically religion, family, education, government, media, arts and entertainment, and business. Well, So they're saying that you need to, that it's the church is going to overtake or take these seven areas away from the of Satan. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And maybe we, I mean, you, you, maybe you can edit that and make me sound like I know what I'm talking about with the (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I don't think so. Okay. Okay. (laughs) But, um, so there is that, that, that is a, an indicator of in in our church, but especially there's an apostle, there is the, the, the office of apostle. Yeah. But even that, like somebody, might say it, what do you what do you think an apostle is is an important question uh um, yep. like is it a missionary a, a person a church planter cuz some charismatics will say that and like I'm more comfortable with that but uh if you by apostle you mean uh what a lot of preachers in so-called apostles mean which is like I'm authoritative my vision for the church stands um above yeah. the re- above all other advice or uh, opinions and they, they cast the vision for the church. They give the direction of the church. They're the boss. Yep. And I don't think that's biblical at all. Like it's uh, a very,
0: it's very Catholic actually.
1: Yeah. Like a apostolic succession with the Pope.
0: Yeah. And the bishops like very much more in that grain than, than the Protestant views.
1: It totally is. Um, Yeah. And I mean, even like, I know guys who've had experiences with their so-called apostle where they bring up uh they bring up some some concerns about the ministry like hey i I think in biblically we need to have a focus on on our flock here you know maybe we don't or 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 we need to have a focus on teaching and really yeah on our teaching here and i've i know that a- apostle there, that so-called apostle have, has said like, Hey, you know, God's not going to, to bless you until you come underneath my vision. And right. Y- right now you're resisting. I know people who've been fired from, uh, from NAR churches. And it's similar to the experience that I had, where it was like, Hey, this is the vision. If you don't like it, you can leave. Um, right. so that's the NAR and, you know, people wouldn't obviously know of Bethel Church and Redding with Bill Johnson. Like that's NAR. Right. And of course they would say yeah, like, Copeland. they would say what is NAR, which makes it a little harder that it's not a category people want to identify with. Like Bill Johnson would say, no, what are you talking about? I'm not NAR. Sure. Sure. But I, I would say it's probably safe to assume like that model is what we're talking about where there's an apostle who's calling the shots and a prophet. There's a prophet, there's a fivefold ministry. Yep. Evangelist, shepherd and then a teacher. Yeah, and th- something that makes an NAR church an NAR church in you know, in my view and I think in Doug and Holly's view. This is a new it's a new term. It's actually a term that somebody somebody coined uh really recently. Is it Peter Wagner? Yeah. So but he would, would he it's uh, he, he was he was a charismatic dude, right? Yeah, he was the
0: founder of Global Harvest Ministries, and I think kind of the... Um, second wave dude, right? Second apostolic age, he kind of... Yeah, his ministry was kind of launched the second apostolic age. Yeah, C.
1: Peter Wagner, right? Yeah. Second wave. Yep. So, okay, so the NAR, what makes an a NAR church... In our church, in my opinion, and in Doug and Holly's opinion, would be like there is a culture that dishonors teaching, dishonors every other spiritual gift, and places pro- the, 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 uh, the apostle above those gifts. And the apostle is the one who, like I said before, is like calling the shots, and mm. everyone else is to submit to him. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, in, in partnership with a prophet you know, and these are offices in the church. Yeah. And
0: I don't know this, maybe you do, but is is like word of faith synonymous with NAR or is it, or is NAR within the word of faith movement
1: or are these things? No, in, those uh, are, I mean, so the word of faith is just, it's like a theological, it's different. <laughs> it's totally different. So I'm, um, the NAR would be like a church model, or I would say NAR is like a, uh, it's an ecclesiological model for sure. It's not, it's not necessarily theological in, yeah, but I would say word of faith word of faith normally fits somewhere in that, in those churches. You know, yeah. They they the overlap in a,
0: like, yeah, yeah, you might have a guy who would describe to word of faith theology and be a part of the NAR. Yeah. Okay. But
1: something important for your listeners and maybe, you know, us to remember as well, it's like not everybody who believes in the, the office of the apostle or believes that like apostleship continues to this day is a heretic or is a, you know, is a NAR person. They could, sure. they could have a definition where it's like, there are no the case. Yeah. There are no capital A apostles there. Yeah. There are no apostles who, or prophets who, uh, what they speak is binding on the conscience of all Christians forever. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah.
0: Yep. And that's actually a pretty common view, lowercase apostles, because apostle just means sent out one, and that's kind of how they build the case. Yeah. People might make a case that—because we don't have a category—we don't have, like, a biblical word for missionary in our in our New Testament. So we go, well, what is the missionary who is, you know, being sent out from a church to go overseas to advance the Great Commission— and so yeah. I might build the case on Well, he's a lowercase apostle because he's a sent out one and he's going to advance the kingdom as the apostles did in the first century. Okay. I can, I can see how I say, yep, that makes sense. It's not wrong. I might not like to use the word of lowercase apostle. That's where I'm at. But yeah. it's like, yeah, fine. Totally not bad.
1: <laughs> I think it's like splitting. It. I mean, the language yeah. makes me uncomfortable. I'm not ever going to, you know, call someone apostle so-and-so. Right. Just like I would never call someone prophet of God, or right, Sam, whatever. That freaks me yeah. out.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think it's unhelpful to people who are exactly. listening. Exactly. To- it just it it has all those words have so many connotations to them that they're going to be misunderstood some probably more than they'll be rightly understood. Totally. Um, so let's just talk about kind of refuting the the hallmark. Spirit baptism belief. Again, we said it over and over again, but it's the it's this idea that it's this theology, this belief that it's this you you're saved by the preaching of the gospel, as we would believe. You know, you're regenerated by the by the Spirit, but then there's this second experience that you should seek out, being baptized in the Spirit, mm-hmm. and that's evidenced by speaking in tongues, and that's what empowers you for. A life of ministry. So technically, what they're saying and what it does is it creates a two-tier Christianity where you you can have people who are saved, and if they were to die, they would be going, they would go to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, the work of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, has been applied to their lives, and they do have the Spirit, but but they're not yet empowered for ministry. And and you need to get the empowering. So the way in which they build this theology is is primarily through the Book of Acts, like that. Uh, you don't have Spirit Baptism theology without the Book of Acts, and they're going to they're going to look at those specific texts. Obviously, Acts two with Pentecost—that's where we we get the term Pentecostalism from. Uh, and they're gonna they're gonna look at Pentecost and see, okay, look, um, the Spirit came upon them in tongues of fire, and they and then they spoke in tongues as evidence of the Spirit coming upon them. And yeah. they would say, look, the disciples that, that were at Pentecost, they were already, you know, quote-unquote Christians. They were already saved. They were already followers of Christ. And then they had the secondary experience, the baptism of the Spirit, when the Spirit came, and then they spoke in tongues. And so they would kind of Build that kind of order from, from Pentecost, and then you have further examples in the Book of Acts. Think of the evangelist Philip; um, he's preaching in Samaria, and 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 there's some converts there in Samaria that then speak in tongues. It's in Acts eight. Um, Cornelius with Peter, and, right. and he speaks in tongues. And then you have Acts nineteen. Uh, in in ephesus uh, there's some disciples 12 disciples in ephesus
1: who the disciples of john yep, yep. John the baptist yep. who
0: had only received the baptism of john and and then paul says well do you have the spirit and they say i don't even know what this that there is such a thing as the holy spirit <laughs> and so then and then they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and then the spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues. So um those are kind of the 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 main four texts that they're going to that Pentecostals are going to look at and and build their doctrine of of the second experience. And now on the face of it on the face of it you can see what they're getting at. Like it's not totally crazy. Uh, right. They're not they're not totally pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Like, okay, what what do we do with the reality that that Philip preached the gospel? I'm going back to Acts eight. I'm just going to read this text, and I'm going to kind of explain what. I think, or how we should be interpreting this. This is Acts 8, starting in verse 9. Now I'm going to go up to verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in the city. and what is being referred there as water baptism, both men and women were water baptized after they heard the gospel. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'll stop there. Now it gets into some Simon stuff. He wants to pay for this power, but nonetheless, uh, there it is right there. And, and on the face of it, like that sounds like what the Pentecostals are, are proclaiming, what yeah. they're saying.
1: That's it right it's there. It's a tough Look. passage for sure. Yeah.
0: They, they go, look, there it is. It's so, it's so clear. People hear the gospel. They're saved. Right. They're water baptized. Yep. They're members of our churches. But then they have to have the second experience of receiving the Spirit. Uh, and then it, that's evidenced by, not in this passage does it say tongues, but we can assume that they spoke in tongues. Other passages, like with Cornelius, he speaks in tongues. Yeah. Uh, so what do we do with this? why are we saying that this isn't what this passage is teaching well the the context is huge
1: right
0: and first we have to figure out and, and understand what is the purpose of tongues in the book of Acts for the for, like at the face of it and tongues if we look back to acts 2 uh, was known languages the disciples were filled with spirit they were they, they the Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues so that all these people that were gathered for Pentecost from all these gathering nations, from all these different nations, they heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in their native tongue, it says. And then they believed in Christ. And then Peter obviously preached his, his sermon, and he called them to repent, and they believed. So so tongues is known languages, and it was the, it was the disciples originally that were filled with the Spirit and then spoke in tongues. So the way in which tongues operates then throughout the book of Acts, is it is it is a sign to to the original disciples, even the apostles themselves, that look the gospel is for this group of people and this group of people and this person. Uh, because again, remember that like God's people in the Old Testament, they were the Jews, they were ethnic Israel, right. and the Gentiles were. They were outside of the covenant. There was this, you know, dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. If you wanted to be saved and be a part of God's people, you had to become a Jew. You had to be, if you were a Gentile, you had to proselytize yourself. You had to come into the nation of Israel and become a Jew. So you have this, this radical teaching in a sense that, wait a minute, God's people now is going to be made up from people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And that the Gentiles are going to be coming into the fold, that they're welcomed in through the gospel through faith. And that the Samaritans and all these people, the Greeks, whoever they might be, they can come in to God's fold through faith. So it's not just exclusively Jew now. It's not a Jewish faith anymore. So we know that we human beings are we're, – we're dumb and we often can harbor prejudice and we can uh, often forget things and we need to be shown the reality of, of these truths over and over again to really get it. So why – I guess how tongues again operated in the book of Acts was it was a, it was a sign to the early – apostles and disciples, especially the Jewish ones, that look, God's almost saying to them, look, they received the gospel and they did exactly what you did when I filled you with my spirit at Pentecost. Right. They spoke in tongues. And it was, it was flashing lights to the, to the apostles that, look, the gospel is for Gentiles too. The Gentiles too are my people through, through faith in Christ. So, so if there was no tongue speaking in the book of Acts, it would be really easy for the, for the Jewish apostles, think, you know, Peter, James, John, those guys, that they could start to go, well, may, you know, did they really receive the gospel? Did they really receive the spirit? Do we really know that the gospel is for them too? and And it would be really easy for them to kind of still kind of make the Christian faith a Jewish faith. So God, because he's gracious to us and he helps us out in our weaknesses, he's like, no, I'm going to make it very obvious that the Gospels for the Gentiles too. I'm going to have them speak in tongues in front of your face. So that's exactly what's going on in Acts 8. Uh, Like God is providentially... Changing the order of things chron- chronologically in order to make things obvious to us. So the Samaritans were a hated group of people from the from the Jewish perspective. I mean, Mason, we just went through this in, in the book of Ezra at, at church. yeah, like the idea that in Ezra, uh some of the the priests and, and Jews were marrying foreign women and this was a this is a horrible thing in the in the sight of God this broke the covenant.
1: Yeah, they were like the symbol of tainted Israel uh yeah. spiritual and physical adulterers basically.
0: Yeah. So so Samaritans were this mixed breed people. It was Jews who had married foreign women and created this 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 mixed breed hybrid Samaritan person. So they were from the Old Testament perspective, yeah, they, they were this, this outside example and shining symbol of disobedience mm-hmm. and covenant transgression. Yeah. So they were despised to the point to where, you know, Jews would walk all the way around Samaria. They wouldn't go through Samaria, and that's why, you know, Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well is such a, a captivating story for us to show that, look, Jesus is going to bring in even Samaritans in, into the fold. That's incredible. So, here Philip is preaching to Samaritans. They're an out-group. Even in God's providence, Philip was a Hellenistic Jew, so he was was one of those out-groups as well. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And he was the one that preached to them the gospel. They're saved. They're baptized with water, but they haven't yet received the Spirit. Why? Because... God wants to make sure that Peter and John, these Jew of Jews, these apostles, see with their very eyes that the gospel is going to go to the Samaritans too. And so the order is changed.
1: Yeah. I think that's really plausible. I, I actually I don't know totally what I what I think about this. I don't I don't hold the Pentecostal view in Acts 8 for sure. But and then one reason I don't is like I, I would I would more swing toward what you said because um acts Acts ten you with Cornelius Yeah the order is not the same at all. I mean in, with Cornelius in Acts ten, they're uh they hear the good news, yep. they worship, they they break out in tongues in the middle of his sermon, it seems like. The spirit is moving heavy. Uh and then they're like, you know, peter's basically like who can stop these guys from being baptized right so i don't see the they're saved they're baptized then they're then they're uh, spirit baptized you no know, water baptized then spirit baptized like in acts 8 in acts 10 it's it's a, it's a little more complex than that the the order's not always like that so I don't know. It's worth looking into. I just, right. I think like if we're talking about spiritual baptism, you know, Holy Spirit baptism for the sake of ministry, it's always talked about that your, your regeneration is your, your, uh, spiritual power for, for, for ministry. Yeah, we
0: could say it is your spiritual baptism because John says, you know, the, the one who's coming after John the Baptist is the one who comes after me. He will... With sandals, I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you in the Spirit. Yeah. So it's a th- it's a thing. It's a theological thing. What is it? It's not a second experience. It is your very conversion. It is regeneration.
1: Right. Right. And when Paul talks about the the cross, his is the power. The mystery of God is the cross. Is that the Gentiles are reconciled and with the Jews to God through Christ's body of flesh through His death on the cross that's the power for ministry. I, I just, I don't, there is no, there's no didactic teaching on receiving the Holy spirit for, uh, you know, as a second blessing for, you know, to live a really good Christian life, which is basically, um, right. What is taught there. And, and of course, of course there's the teachings on like to walking in the spirit, uh, and, and, uh, keeping in step with the spirit, bearing fruit in the spirit, uh, Yep. But I just don't think those are ever uh, tied to this second filling, right? Right, signaled by tongues. Yeah, and so that's what that's what's confused people
0: when they when you read through Acts, is you see these different orders. Like again, like as Mason was saying, as you were saying, like with Cornelius and the Gentiles there, it it was a different order than Philip and the Samaritans. And in verse 44 of chapter 10, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. So there's kind of the emphasis that I'm getting at. Yeah. There was people there from the circumcised with Peter and they were, they were amazed. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was poured out. Look at that. Out even on Gentiles. That's the point. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, "Can anyone withhold water from bapt? Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have?" And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So, again, a different order from Philip and the Samaritans. Here it's 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 preaching. It's then it's then it's the Spirit comes upon you and you speak in tongues. And then it's baptism by water. So. Before it was with Philip, it was preaching the gospel, baptized with water, and then you get the spirit and and it's assumed you speak in tongues. So so again, why the differing orders? Why is this why is there inconsistency in the book of Acts? It's because again, God is making trying to whoever's he needs to make this obvious to he's he's changing the order of these things in order to make a point and prove a point that the gospel is for Gentiles or whoever the outclass or outgroup is, Samaritans, other Gentiles, whatever it might be. So it's providential. And it's not what we would say. It's not normative. And that's kind of the big theological hermeneutical thing when we we read Acts. What we're trying to figure out, what's normative from the book of Acts and what's non-normative? What's descriptive? What's prescriptive? So we can't read a description of events such as this when the spirit falls upon these gentiles uh with Cornelius there and Peter and stuff we can't read this in and um read into it prescription or commandments or saying this is how it you should do it or this is how it will be right uh, it's just a description of what happened at that point but when we read through the entire entirety of acts and then we read it in light of you know subsequent letters to the churches we see that no actually because this is the inception this is the very beginning of the church mm-hmm. uh it's the church is a baby at this point a newborn baby there are going to be parts of the the church's beginning years that what we would we would say is it, they're not normative mm-hmm. they're unique to that time because it's a baby like like it's it's a human baby is still a human being. But the, the a human baby is doing things that are not normative to the rest of the human life. Like a human baby breastfeeds, but you uh, you stop breastfeeding, you know, a year and a half, two years, that's, that's like pushing. <laughs> like you're not breast—a human person is not breastfeeding the rest of their life. Right. Like let's say they live to 80. Like, okay, one year out of 80 years you breastfed. Should we look at that one year of breastfeeding and all of a sudden read that in a prescription of all human persons should breastfeed their entire life and this is how it always should be? It's like no, 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 because it's a baby, <laughs> it's growing, it's not fully developed. Right. So that's ex- that's how you need to look at the the early church. It's it's a brand new thing, and what distinguishes it from the old covenant community? This is Jeremiah thirty one. What's gonna what's going to be the hallmark sign difference between the old covenant community and the new covenant community? It's going to be that the new covenant people are going to be marked by the Spirit. Yeah, They're going to have the law written on their hearts. Ezekiel says they're going to, you know, God's going to take out their heart of stones and put in heart, hearts of flesh. They're going, to be, they're going to have my Spirit in them. Yeah, Joel. I mean, I'll pour out yeah. my Spirit on all flesh. Exactly. So that's the, that's the hallmark sign that distinguishes... Old Covenant community from New Covenant community,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and 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 so this church is a it's a new it's, it's a new thing it's a new Covenant community, and and so as it's getting its legs under it and as it's, and it's in its you know very early years there's going to be aspects to it that are that are again not normative that right. are unique only to the first century in the apostolic period yeah. where there's actually apostles who can write and speak the very words of God walking around among them, doing healings, doing miracles. And, and again, for, for, you know, man, 1,500 years, 2,000 years, for the most part, like, God's people were only Jews yeah. of, of the ethnic or of the physical seed of Abraham. Yeah. So it's, it's such a radical idea that non-physical seed could ever be a part of God's covenant community. That's why God is changing the order of these things in order to make a point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's cataclysmic or it's, it's epic every time, every time there's a new people group that's reached in acts, there's outpouring of the Holy spirit along with that's signed by tongues. I mean, even even, Paul uh, receives the Holy spirit after he's uh, on, on the road to Damascus when he's healed. He, right he's, he's healed the, like scales fall off of his eyes and yeah. ananias lays his hands on him yep yeah and ananias important point since uh you know since we're we'll, we'll talk more about that tomorrow or next time we next time we we talk but the this it like you said it can't be seen to be normative we can't just assume that what we see in acts is normative um right like the church we're i don't i don't think that Christ intends that we all live in a, in a commune, all the Christians in the world live in one commune, sharing everything.
0: That's... Right. And this is where the home church m- movement kind of gets, they, they again make certain aspects of acts normative when it's not normative. Right. And they go, look, look at, they, it's assumed that they met in homes and stuff, and therefore then we, we, need to, you know, we need to be a first century church. Or do you need to be a one-year-old, you know, again? Like... Maybe not.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I'm I sure. Like, I'm sure I like there are analogy. benefits. I, I know you do, and you'll use it for cessationism. I'm sure. Oh, I, for, I'm gonna. I'm gonna whip it back out. Yeah, but, like, I'm. Sh- I'm sure there are helpful. I I get where what, where the Pentecostals got their doctrine of the second blessing, spiritual baptism. Yeah. I just I don't think they're pulling it from. They're definitely not, uh, pulling it from. You know, Paul's epistles. Right, they're, they're not. They're not, or they're, Peter's. they're not
0: reading. They're not reading. They're not interpreting scripture with scripture. Right, in that in that sense. So they're it's a they're they're doing bad hermeneutics. Yeah, but, which is obviously uh, a hallmark of a lack of theological training. Yeah, um, yeah. They're they're not trained in the Hebrew and the Greek. Uh, that's that anti-intellectualism again. That's just like, okay, like. It's just bad
1: exegesis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, dude, we should get into we should get into what's sprung up out of this uh, some of the some of yeah. these abominable doctrines.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, with we could even say too, like we're not going to really get into this. We're good to say it though, but this idea, another Pentecostal hallmark, charismatic hallmark, is again that Christ's atonement. Earned for you, basically physical healing yep. in this life, yeah. and that uh, you can always receive physical healing through faith, because mm-hmm. it was something Christ got
1: won for you on the cross. It's always God's yeah. will to heal. Is the saying. Yep. is the yep. saying. Yeah,
0: and we're saying we're saying like, uh, yeah, Christ earned for you on the cross a resurrected body. Yeah like you will one day be resurrected you will be given a new body you'll be glorified and you'll never have physical what pain or death again for sure but it's a, it's it's the hope of the gospel and we're saying it's it's the hope we look forward to it's not it, we're not over realizing our eschatology here yeah. and saying now like yeah. i want it now yeah 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 and so uh, an abuse of that then is like well what's the harm in that like you know mm. Some people might get healed, but what if they don't? And that's kind of where the harm comes from. Sure. Is you go, well, you don't have enough faith.
1: Right. Which plays into the word of faith or the, yeah. uh, you know, lo- the att- basically it's the law of attraction, the new age law of attraction, Christianized version yeah. of that. Uh, it places the, the burden on the person who wants to be healed or the person who's praying for the healing. That's where the yeah. focus is, it, what level of faith and by faith I mean psychological certainty. Yeah. You know, and denial of, of reality. Uh, yeah. like somebody could be in a wheelchair saying, I'm standing. I stand in the power of you know, the power of God I stand. It's like, no, you don't, you sit. And or like, I'm not sick. I am not sick. I don't speak that into existence. I don't you know, I don't yeah, yeah. I don't confess that. I'm like, you are sick. You and you are sick. And, I mean, while we're there, like every person that came to Jesus for healing had one thing in common. They recognized they were sick and they needed his power to to heal them. Um, They didn't come saying, I just know I'm healed already. You know, like the woman with the issue of blood was like, if I can just touch, I know he will heal me. Not like I know I will, you know. It's not a psychological, it's, it's a confidence in a person, not psychological right. certainty in some force of faith that right. you can muster. Right. Right. And, you know, the, the, the interesting
0: thing about Jesus's healings, there were things that were very obvious to verify.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, it's the guy who hasn't been able to walk his whole life laying on a mat that everybody knows has been laying on this mat forever and yeah. Jesus comes by, you know, and says walk and he walks and everybody sees it. It's like holy moly. Or the p- person that's been blind his life and everybody knows he's blind. And all of yeah. a sudden he can see. And and whatever uh, like raising Lazarus from the dead, like okay. Very verifiable types of 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 healings. And what you yeah. you see a lot though in the world of healing is my Headaches back, and and arthritis, bro. Ed- arthritis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so it's it's like the, and I know Justin Peters, he did his doctoral dissertation on on Benny Hinn, yeah, and on the healing stuff, and so he went to, he went to so many of of Benny Hinn's healing uh, revival things, yeah, as for uh, for his research, and obviously Justin Peters is is in a wheelchair yeah he, he can't walk what is it what does he
1: have i actually don't know i i i uh lou gehrig's maybe
0: uh, yeah i don't know ms yeah m- yeah muscular i don't know something like that so anyway he's in a wheelchair so he he even said that he would go to these these benny hen healings and and he, he's obviously in a wheelchair so if he gets healed like and he stands out of his wheelchair Okay. That's crazy. But there would be ushers that would, would, you know, people would be lined up to go up front and get healed by, get whipped by Benny Hinn's coat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, there would be ushers that would, that would say that would stop people like him from going up front.
1: Yeah. And anyone who's seen American gospel, I mean, you can see that on tape, yep. uh, whether or not, you know, and I, I I don't want to say Benny Hinn is like, we're going to trick all these idiots. We're going to trick them good so that they give us money. The way that they would say it, I've heard this said even in charismatic circles, we want to raise the faith in the room. We want to raise the faith. And so like he might've said, like coached people, like somebody who's in a wheelchair, we want to do that after the faith is high enough in the room. So like move that, you know, but. So back of the line, but we'll never get to you. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And and this is so incredibly damaging to yeah it's damaging to the name of christ um to to put burdens on people who are already suffering and and i'm like i'll I'll push back on something you said a little bit like yeah do it jesus you know if if all the all the miracles he did were written down there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it you know so says the all-sufficient word of god right but so so did he heal headaches i'm sure he did did he heal sure did he heal constipation or whatever? I hope so. I bet he did, you know, uh, or hemorrhoids. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> like, and and nobody's complaining about having their headache healed either. You know, those people yeah. who have genuinely experienced God's healing at these conferences or whatever, they're not complaining. They're happy for it. And right. But it there is this. Uh, it's not accompanied by these. Incredible healings that you see, and and I think those those have been done. They're just you don't see those on camera on the on the TV. Uh, like the first time I've heard about biblical biblical sized miracles and experienced you know stories of those is really Craig Keener's book, Miracles. It's just sure. like a book that's like encyclopedia thick of you like researched doctor uh you know they've the medical reviewed miracles yep. with the medical yep. reports and stuff that yep. that can be something we talk about tomorrow but it's not something you see you see often right and
0: yeah we, we'll talk about that in the next one because that's one of the misconceptions about cessationism is uh, cessationism is people think oh you guys don't believe that god heals, right and we're like, no, actually we do. We like, don't believe in healers. Healers. Yeah, we don't believe in healers. Yeah, or, And we don't believe in the fact that everybody can be healed. Um, mm-hmm. We believe it's a, a providential, sovereign work of God. So If he wants to heal you, he can heal you. Yeah. And we should pray for it. Right. So, yeah, so that's one of the abuses. It really tarnishes people's faith. Yeah. If, 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 if they're being told that you're sick and if you had enough faith, you could be healed and you're not healed. Well, man. I must not have faith. Yeah. I must not be a Christian, and that's really that's really a spiritual abuse. It is. Um, it is. And two, I mean, the same th- with the the whole uh, you know spirit baptism thing and empowerment for ministry. Uh, anytime you create a two tier Christianity, like that's that is sneakingly like sneakingly close to the issues going on in in the Corinthian Church. Mm-hmm. with... With tongues, uh, the Lord's Supper with tongues, mm-hmm. too. Yep, and all these different divisions. I mean, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, right. like all these different divisions were going on in the church. There was these different tiers of Christianity. Well, yeah, you know, we're the, we're the affluent Christians, and so we get to eat, take the Lord's Supper first, right? Uh, and, and those lower poor socioeconomic status type Christians, you, you know, you have to wait your turn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, us with, with the gifts of prophecy and tongues, we, we're the greatest. Yeah. Uh, and we start creating these distinctions. And Paul's like, man, that is so bad. Yeah. Like, even with the Lord's Supper, like, that's why some of you are dying, he says. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, the, the Lord is killing you, physically killing you. Yeah. To keep you from judgment. going to hell. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's it's any type of... Two tier Christianity, separating, and I mean, the Catholicism does this too with their with their their bishops and the lay Christians oh, too. Oh yeah, yeah. It creates a two tier structure, and anytime that happens in the Christian faith, and this is what we would we would put forward as the a hallmark Protestant view is is the, the priesthood of all believers, um, you, you know. So, Pentecostalism is is I mean, they would they would adhere to that Protestant doctrine of the priesthood of all believers but they're kind of uh kind of uh getting sneakily or like they're sneaking away from it with this idea of there's some who are christians that haven't been empowered yet and and you create this two-tier structure and what about the person who's been baptized in the spirit but hasn't spoken in tongues what are they supposed to think and um they might feel like oh no what am i Mm-hmm. I'm some scum that I can't speak in tongues and yeah, what has happened to me? Like I must not even be saved then. Again, all these types of things like that. You have any ideas, other ideas of of abuses or where it kind of really takes a nasty turn? Where um,
1: Pentecostalism does?
0: Well, just, you know, where these gifts have, have really just been abused. Oh, yeah,
1: man. So like uh, prophecy... I think for the same reason that Paul had to tell the Thessalonians to—they were a mature Christian church. You know, the Thessalonians are mature in their faith; they're super mature. Paul boasts about them to other churches. They're—they're they're the jewel of Paul's crown. You know, his, they're yeah. his heavenly crown. He says, right? They're mature Christians, and he has to tell them, "Do not despise prophecy." Um, yeah. and I think he had to tell them that for the same reason that we have to—you know—we read it. Uh, the same reason people despise prophecy today is like people are abusing it. People say you're you're supposed to marry me, or God yeah, yeah. God the told Lord, me yeah, this. Yeah. I had a vision, right? Yeah. God told me this. God told me that. Um, there's so-called prophets today that's you know claim they can go to heaven whenever they want to. Kat Kerr is one of those pink-haired crazy lady. I mean, genuinely, she's 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 unstable. She's unhinged. Talks yeah, about. And- being in heaven, seeing uh, rabbits driving tractors, kids going to prophetic art school classes. She apparently has sat on uh, Jesus's lap and looked in his, no, God's lap and looked in his crystal crystal clear blue eyes. I'm so sorry, I can barely even get it out because (laughs) I mean, just the irreverence and lunacy of some people who claim to be prophets. And Paul said specifically, if anybody thinks he's spiritual, you think you're a prophet, let him acknowledge what I'm saying is the very word of God. Like, yeah. So, prophets today should be if if prophecy does exist, those prophets should be the first ones to take us back to the word of God and and say, you know, and point us to those word the uh, the words that God has said. They shouldn't be teaching strange new teachings about traveling to heaven or I don't I don't know healing frequencies of certain animals and crystals and minerals and <laughs> crap like you read in in the physics of heaven or in some of these Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's just it's totally unfounded in, in and yeah. it's and it's unsupported by the scriptures. I mean, there's we didn't get into a ton of the abuses, but I mean, uh apostleship is another one that can be just devastatingly yeah. um abusive you know you have a spiritual authority who's who's basically speaking the word of god to you in your view you know and and so it's a sinful man with man's uh, sinful heart and will um, you know casting judgment on you or dismissing you or your your opinions Um, there's just there's all kinds of weird and damaging outcomes that can, that can come from abuses of the, of the gifts. You you mentioned the one about tongues, like two, two classes of Christian, uh, prophecy can be manipulative, uh, uh apostleship. Same thing can be, can be manipulative. And I mean, t- t- teaching there are, it's a spiritual gift that is totally, you know, able you're able to manipulate and it can be totally damaging when, when abused, um, all of the spiritual gifts are that way, I I, mean, I guess, except like administration.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're bad at spreadsheets, man. An evil administrator. Evil. Idiot. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but your numbers are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. So uh, and I, I would just want to say, like, as we close, Pentecostal, uh, Pente- our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, we love them. If you're a Pentecostal person, you're listening. We love you. I love you. You you may well be a a blood bought child of God. If you if you've turned from your sin and you trust in Jesus Christ, you've been born again. And it wasn't a second blessing that empowered you for ministry. It was the blood of Christ which He purchased you with. He justified you. He called you, justified you, sanctified you. Will glorify you all by the blood of Christ, not by um, you know, not by some secondary cause. Yeah, uh, But we love you, and you're our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't, you know, we're not mad at you. We're not mad at you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But maybe go to a different church. <laughs> totally. Totally do. Um, Okay, well, that's good. I think that, that laid a good foundation for us. And uh, then we can start to meander our way in our next episodes into really getting into, yeah, kind of putting forward our different views of, of how we view the gifts. And I think that'll be really fun, man. Me. We didn't
1: even touch on, we didn't even touch on the word of faith or like, well, the we can tiny we, God we doctrines. Do,
0: we can totally do that. Okay. Okay. We'll we'll do it on the next one. Okay, awesome.
1: <laughs> awesome. I make the rules. This is my podcast. <laughs> this, this is great, man. You're like the <laughs> apostle. You could just you cast the vision yeah, yeah. and everything lines up. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> you come under my vision, Mason. All right. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks again for uh, tuning into the Preach and Persuade podcast. Um, you can check out more about my ministry at AFCI.us. We just got a new website, so check it out if you want. Uh, but another good gift that you could give me and in, in, in my ministry is just leaving a rating on Apple Podcast or Spotify, and that helps with discoverability. So that would be if you haven't yet left a rating, that would be great. So thanks again for listening and tune into the next episodes. Bye.